and ghouls welcome to the 100th episode of dads for the crypt my name is jason and i'm joined by jody hello and mondo hello and tonight we will be discussing a creep show the movie but since this is our 100th episode we want to have a very special guest without whom jody mondo and i probably would have never met and started the very podcast you're listening to he is the co-founder of bloody good horror website and host of the bloody good horror podcast and he composed our theme music. His name is Eric Newell. Welcome. Two things. I literally forgot I composed your theme music. I did. And that was a lot, it was a lot of fun. Uh, and I had no idea this was your 100th episode. And I now feel um, embarrassed by the praise. But thank you. I'm glad to be here. Oh, well, I know. Uh, I have to get you by surprise anyways, or else you would have run away <laughs> from it. <laughs> That's pretty perceptive, Jason. I feel oh, like been, we've been listening to you for like, <laughs> I don't know, 10 years, something like that. You get to know someone vicariously. I That's appreciate creepy. being seen. Yes. Or not seen sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in case someone has, for some reason, not heard of Blade Good Horror, why don't you uh, give us your elevator pitch? Yeah, I mean, man, I don't even know what it is at this point. <laughs> it's, a, it's a weekly roundtable horror podcast where we review largely new releases it's a mix of, it used to be all theatrical, now it's theatrical and obviously VOD because that's the world we live in and it makes life easier, honestly. Um, we uh, just hit over 700 episodes this wow. year, just to kind of give people an idea of like how long yeah. we've been doing it. Um, and when did you start? Our first episode aired around Halloween 2007. Wow. Now you were so, kind of on that first wave of podcasts that came out. Yeah, when people first started podcast, doing it. Sure. Yeah, mm. I mean, there were like a handful, and there were some. The only other one, whatever. I'm not going to start promoting other people's podcasts. Oh, no, there's no. a there's a couple that are still around, but it's not a lot. Yeah. But you know, it's like a I don't know. It, we enjoy doing it. For me, it's largely a um, social thing at this point. I mean, mm. you talk about giving BGH credit for kind of bringing you guys together. We met all you guys through our community, and like. Uh, you know, it's become a huge part of my life in general, not just like internet life, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. those that know our, our lore, we all, me, Mono, and Jody all met through the Blade Horse Slack, and especially during COVID when we started doing trivia. That's kind of how yeah. we all started really meeting, and that's kind of Jody how the trivia master. Jody the trivia <laughs> master, exactly. Um, so, again, we are eternally grateful to you and all the other supporters of bloody good horror for uh getting us all together um so let's move to tonight we're talking about creep show and eric i know this is a very special movie for you so tell me about your association relationship history with creep show yeah sure uh well you and i jason were chatting a little at pre-show about nostalgia i think that's mm -hmm. definitely going to be a topic of discussion with this one um when I say this movie is like in my bones, I mean like it is in my bones. Um, it is, that's probably largely a product of the fact that it used to air on, I believe, USA 
a lot of my movie memories are like TNT or USA. Mm -hmm. Something in my gut tells me this was a USA one. I have no evidence to back that up. But the funny thing is, too, actually, I guess I was going to say this later on, but the TV cut that USA used to play didn't have the last story. And so, like, Mm. I realized later on, I, like, rented it when I was in college and was like, what is this? Like, I had no (laughs) idea there was just a whole other story in there. So that was a pretty... You don't get mind-blowing things like that too much these days. But uh, I am obsessed with the color. Mm-hmm. Um, for an anthology, they're just these wonderful, simple little stories brought to life by like a surprisingly very strong cast. I mean, I'll even give, give Stephen King credit for for his. He's he's he made choices and he committed to them, and I appreciate that. Um, my favorite is Hal Holbrook. Like, I think I was the only 11-year-old on Earth who would name Hal Holbrook as his favorite actor. <laughs> um, and the, the, the other big thing for me was the music. Mm-hmm. I, I could go for 20 minutes. I don't know how deeply you want me to get into it. It is one of my favorite horror soundtracks, and that's a thing we can get into later as well. Definitely. I, actually, I had a very similar um, experience where I saw this on network TV when I was a kid. But I think I only yeah. saw the um, Stephen King one, and then I only saw half of something to tide you over. Was I that like it... a Sunday creature feature? Exactly. Or something? So yeah. I remember when I was a kid, I was just flipping around. I was like, "What is this?" And I have very, very like core memory of watching this man becoming consumed by the the, the, the green view. Yeah. And then I remember watching the next one. It must have been like just done together with before the commercials and the commercial cut before the zombie part of something to tide you over. So mm-hmm. I didn't know that was part of it until I finally rented and watched the whole thing. Um, so, it's, yeah, it's very interesting how uh, I think a lot of our generation grew up watching things kind of piecemeal sometimes. Yeah. But um, we'll get into all of these segments. So, Jody, you are our plot synopsizer. Uh, why don't you start us off? This is Creep Show. came out November 12th, 1982. Yeah, so... Most of these stories are so simple that they can be synopsized in like a sentence or two. It's it's the presentation. It's not so mm-hmm. much that the stories mm-hmm. are like we're super complicated. So the prologue of this one is literally just a boy gets a comic book and his dad throws it in the garbage. And that's your wraparound. And strikes right. him. Like, <laughs> and, and then he says, that's why God made fathers, babe. Yes. Yeah. That's a hell of a one. One of the best lines in movie history. It, it, we can say uh, Tom Atkins needs some therapy in this. Like, he's, he, That guy needs mm-hmm. to go to therapy. And he's, he's got some uh, some demons. He, he says that, by on. the way, while he's pouring beer into a regular drinking glass, which has always driven me insane. <laughs> it's like a with milk all, glass. With all the foam. Yeah. It just, just upside down. Yeah, that's not how you do it, buddy. <laughs> You think Tom Atkins would not I also don't believe in uh, an alcoholic to that degree would even care about having a glass. Eh, yeah. you, you, well, you got to think you have all these people now that are like wine enthusiasts or they're beer enthusiasts, which is basically alcoholism. That's true. They do usually have fancy glasses. Yeah. Alcoholism disguised as a hobby. But right. uh, <laughs> my pet peeve with that is when the gla- when people take a picture of their beer in the glass, in the glass, you see all the bubbles because it's dirty as hell. And I'm like, please clean your glassware mm-hmm. before you use it. <laughs> All right, All right, so our first segment is Father's Day. And uh, all of these segments come from the comic book, like you see the comic book laying around pages flip. You have the creep floating around in the background. He does nothing, mostly. Like, he just kind of is there in the background and makes faces and sometimes goes animated. He creeps? 
he creeps. Uh, but it's definitely very EC Comics, just with a silent narrator. He's he's just there, kind of being the force yeah. that gets these stories going. I love how the way they animate the the panels and then the, the comic to the point where like I wish they would go slower so I could see what is actually on each of those panels. Mm-hmm. I know now you can get screen grabs at the time. It must have been like really annoying that about the scene. That was the fun of it though, right? Yeah. Every time you rewatch it, it's like, okay, now I'm going to start here. Or, or pause your VHS tape and trying to, <laughs> trying to catch that moment. Rewind, <laughs> pause, rewind, pause. All right. So the first segment, like I said, is called Father's Day. And it's about a family getting together um, for a dinner and they... Uh, they all start talking about kind of family secrets, and it's kind of an open secret that uh, the great aunt murdered her father. And then, I mean, he comes back, and that's that's the basic plot. Uh, there's some family stuff going on, and there's a uh, ashtray that floats from segment to segment. Uh, but yes, it's a really simple story of a, a zombie, zombie dad who but starts get- murdering everybody. But we get uh, Ed, Ed Harris showing some dance moves. Oh, the dance moves are so awesome. So this movie, too, like you figure came out in 1982, but yeah. what you can tell from this segment is like, oh, man, this really was still that. It's, so presuming they rode and shot it 80, 81, right? Mm-hmm. It's straddling that line between 70s, 70s and 80s because Ed Harris is full late 70s. Like there's nothing 80s about Ed Harris in this yeah. movie. <laughs> Definitely. But I love this whole bit because it's like he's the cipher for the audience entering into this. You know what it is? I've been watching Succession lately. This is very Succession. <laughs> it's like he is the normie entering into this cold, rich, dysfunctional family. And then really that's the setup, right? Is you're, you're gleaning things about their relationships from this little ping-ponging back and forth that they're doing. Yeah, and then we get the, the some really good effects work on the zombie. It looks fantastic. Like, they, they do lots of close-ups. There's so much I love about this one. First of all, I don't know what this says about me, but I kind of have a thing for the matriarch character, the, like, real cold, mean lady. <laughs> I, there's not enough money in the world for all the therapy that that would require, but there's totally something fine. there. <laughs> no, you, you, can, you, can, you, can, you can ask Jason, like, uh, if, you, if you're going to be mean to me, like, we can, we can talk. She's, <laughs> <laughs> she's got a vibe, I'm just saying. Um, like, I, I love the between all of these people. I absolutely love the crazy aunt character. Um, We get the flashback too Mm -hmm. about her life and how her husband gets killed. And that's right away. Like just no one has ever done. I don't think such a gen, like genuine feeling comic book visual style as this movie. And it really is shining right out of the gate with this flashback sequence or when a character feels an emotion, the background drops out and the light, Escapes mm-hmm. take over, right? Like, um, but I absolutely love this aunt character. She, she straight re- say so she ahead. reminded me of the old lady from Knives Out. I don't yeah. know if that's like an homage yeah, in no, some I get way. That. She also, I always had this feeling that she was a young, much younger actress playing old because she looks very done up as an older person. Mm-hmm. So, like, I kind of think she might be hot too, aside, but um. <laughs> Again, like to your point, this is an extremely simple story, but right. it's, I think what makes it work for an anthology, I always say like Creepshow is the perfect anthology and this is the, the because um, I know you guys are reviewing a lot of anthologies right now, right? Yeah. This is the bar I hold it up and I think this holds true with Creepshow. You have to have a banger out off the top and it's better if it's short. If you got a dud, it goes second 
because you've already got buy-in from the first one and people aren't tired yet, so they're not going to give up. Then like the third one, three and four, that's where you got to like really knock it out of the park. And then five is for your quirky weird thing at the end. <laughs> and that like feeling about how you make an anthology film is fully from this movie. I mean, this yeah, was I mean, the, the penultimate anthology. And I, I mean, in my opinion, the best anthology movie ever made. And it's the one by everyone after every anthology after this is going to be judged by how it holds up to creep show in my opinion i mean we've got buried the lead on the talent behind this is george a romero directing right. and stephen king writing i mean mm-hmm. you can't ask for a better I mean, and it's the two of them really at like not that people have different creative cycles in their life i don't want to say like their peak as in they're fallen off or well george mm-hmm. romero did fall off he's dead but <laughs> <laughs> like Jesus. i mean this really is stephen- this is writing King at his coked out like craziest, yeah. right? Like craziest, where he's writing yeah. fucking banger classics yeah. every yeah. year, just crank. You know, like he was he was at the crest of a wave in some sense. Romero was seasoned and knew what he was doing, and yeah, it was a really magical time for them to collaborate. And like I said, you know, all these descriptions are going to be so short, but it's how they do it. Yeah, it's the characters, it's the lighting. The lighting's huge. It's the the way that they make this feel like a comic book all the way throughout. Yeah. Uh, you know, the stories are so simple and that they don't need to be complicated because they, the, the way <laughs> that they're doing the storytelling does all of it for you. And there's like, little like, go ahead. I was yeah, like, imagine any other movie there where they just kicked on some makeup on some guy and had him walk around and say, I want my cake. Like how stupid that would have been like about me by almost anyone else. I want to meet the sound designer that created the design for the voice. Mm-hmm. Because, dude, I mean, Mondo probably knows because I know he's an audiophile. You listen to this movie on, like, a real sound system, and that voice is, like, rumbling oh, your so house. Good. But it is so effective. Mm-hmm. It's so good. It's so good. So right. my favorite line, and again, like, it's where the, the Stephen Kingisms kind of shine through. And I don't know why. It's just, like, there's not much to it. But the, the rich guy, the younger brother, I love him. He's just, like, snivelly and sort of a feat and like he doesn't really there's no love in his family right it's again it's succession it's all Mm -hmm. thinly veiled aggression and like quips and coldness and stuff but he at one point the sister finally she gets vulnerable because she's scared and he has a moment where like he's almost human for a second and he's like, all right, come on. And they go to look in the kitchen. It's right at the end, I guess. But they walk back in the kitchen and the lights are off. And he goes, in just the most like snide tone possible, he goes, what are we trying to conserve energy? <laughs> and like, holy shit, there's just so much said in that line, right? It puts you like, because we got to remember we're in the early 80s. We're in Reagan era where it's all, where money and rich people are the like obsession. And it's like really just um, laying bare he says that was like the just the mere idea that you would be conserving power is both a ridiculous because we're rich and b something t- that's contemptible. And he literally just says that with his tone. And it's crazy how much not a whole lot's changed here in 2023. Well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, this is so the thing, you know. We really like had some good hating on rich people movies in the 80s, and like I feel like the youngsters need to go back and. Yeah, that's definitely a theme I think that runs throughout this entire movie. Uh, I mean, it kind of ebbs and flows for different Money. ones. Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, um, that actor yeah. actually. They're actually, he, you know what? There's money is a big motivating factor for you could argue in each story. Yeah, yeah. in some sense. Definitely. And also, you know, 
you can also say toxic masculinity in a lot of these, but yeah. that's probably most 80s media anyways. Yeah, like in the early 80s, everything was toxic masculinity. I mean, there was no... <laughs> there was, I don't think anyone was trying to combat that back then. Because, like, obviously the, the patriarch of this family was probably a piece <laughs> of shit. So, oh, yeah. like, we're oh, rooting yeah. for his revenge on these other awful people. But, like, the sister is whatever. She's, like, doesn't seem, like, offensive, per se. And same thing with her husband. Like, they're not bad people. They're not the best people to hang out with. But, like, the fact that he's getting revenge on them is just kind of, like, scorch earth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, this is definitely that EC Comics style of totally. everyone is bad. <laughs> yeah. Everyone is bad, and... You can't really root for anybody, but other than uh, blood and guts, like you're you're rooting for violence. I'm, yeah, I mean, I'm yeah. rooting for the kid in the wraparound. That's what I'm rooting for in this, uh, <laughs> <laughs> right? In, in this whole thing. Um, um, well, interesting thing too, Eric. You bring up the music in this, which is just fantastic. One of one of my favorite soundtracks of any horror movie ever. And uh, John Harrison, really, he only did this. He did what Day of the Dead. I think right. he did Creep Show too, and that was it. He did like a handful. Yeah, so uh, it's Tales like, from a Dark Side. A, I think he's a fascinating. Yeah, guy because right he then largely moved on from what i understand to, to direct and produce yeah. um, but like literally strolled in the room and was like hey here's two of the most banger ass horror soundtracks ever like day of the dead is and amazing. this is funny is i was obsessed with creep show and day of the dead for 20 years soundtracks before i knew they were the same person and then i was just fully obsessed i didn't like, to even just, realize this till i bought the vinyl copies from um waxwork yeah. that's when i realized it's the same person like a year ago or two years ago. Early 2000s, <laughs> I bought bootleg CDs at a convention with like crappy printed out paper sleeves. And that's how I figured it out. Same thing. Yeah. Awesome. And they, and then, but once you know that there is, there are a lot of through lines between the two soundtracks. Mm-hmm. But it's, it is a soundtrack that it's not just like if John Carpenter is an ambient um, composer where mm-hmm. John Carpenter just makes a vibe and then it sits under the mix. This is a re- I'm sure there's more better more professional words but it's like a reactive soundtrack yeah. like yeah that's, he that's good. literally and that's kind of the cool thing about going back and listening to it is you start to associate his little each little individual cuz there's 30 cues that only happen once in the movie because they were written specifically to a reaction or a murder or a, you know something happening so I'm I'm just looking at his IMDb and it says that the Father's Day Sweet or whatever you call it, he composed has been used for a bunch of other shows and movies, including South Park. Oh wow, he's done the South Park <laughs> That's episode. Crazy. And, and Jason, he actually directed a couple episodes of Tales. Uh, yeah, he did some. Actually, I have an interview with him um, about a year or so ago. He did some episodes of Tales. He actually has some, um, I think, short stories that he just released, like self-published. Uh, so I'll definitely link those in the uh, details. Um, but let's. But that the the obviously that end shot where the zombie comes out with a big platter with a woman's head with uh, birthday candles and just say, "I got my cake." It's iconic. It's yeah. so goofy. And that, that means if I, the best way I would let me put it this way, I would have a tattoo of this if I didn't have small children. Like <laughs> I have horror tattoos, but that's one of like. But I want it so bad, but I'm just like, I gotta wait. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just yeah, get is, Leslie Nielsen's face on you somewhere. I think that'd be iconic too. I mean, uh, yeah, dude, in that velour sweatsuit. we're we're gonna go there in a minute. This, this is the dad, Leslie Nielsen, though. ensconced in velvet. Dude, mm-hmm. he, he, he basically had like the early '80s version of a drug rug. <laughs> oh my god, it's incredible! <laughs> yeah. like, do you think he has the... velvet underwear on underneath it? I hope so. I mean, <laughs> oh, <that's amazing. laughs> 
I'm this, sure he's not wearing it. This is the dad underwear. dilemma, though, of how far do you push it? Because, like, I have action figures all over my room, and I've had some that I've been like, I really want to get that, but it's too bloody for my small children right now, so I'm going to have to wait on that one. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> my, my child's 20. I have no constraints. I can do whatever the fuck I want. I mean, I've, I've been pushing it over time. I've got Chucky with half a face over here. They, <laughs> uh, I have a Freddy Krueger stand-up in my living room. <laughs> That's amazing. I really like your Michael Myers banner, too. That's pretty sweet. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I, right, I yesterday I had a conference call at work with someone higher up. I totally forgot to take that down, so I had to like real fast. <laughs> I had to real fast. I had to real fast add in a background on my screen because like what's that? What's that banner? I was like, nope, sh- nope, screen. Did you get that from Nothing. Nihai Horror? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, They're- Mondo turned me on to this place that makes like amazing pins and all kinds of mm-hmm. other weird shit. But they're apparently so shady that when I bought stuff from them, PayPal was like, are you being ripped off right now? I was like, no, it's real. Yeah, they're actually local based. So um, Nightmare Toys out here has a lot of their stuff in store. So you can just go pick it up. Yeah, they're they're sweet. All right, Jody, let's move on. All right, our next segment. By the way, is is there a time limit, Jason? Because, Mm -mm. okay, gotcha. Good to know. (laughs) Because I will make you run long. Excellent. You can just you can just watch Jason's face and just see when he gets frustrated, and that's what we, that's what we move on. Yeah, <laughs> as long as we're on topic, I don't care. Yeah, we never get off topic. Um, never. The next segment is the lonesome death of Jordy Verrill, mm. and again, super simple concept. You have this uh, dim-witted backwoods guy, and a meteor lands near him. And it slowly starts to make uh, grass grow all over him. And if he gets in water, it grows more. And he has to deal with uh, becoming a plant man. And then finally blowing his own head off. This is the one that I remember, like in the first segment I ever watched from Creepshow when I was younger. Mm-hmm. And it scared the crap out of me. Just yes. the thought process or just the thought of having that happen to your body and the agony that you'd be going through. Like, and then him killing himself at the end, like gave me nightmares for a long time. Yeah, it's such it's it's it wasn't my favorite as a kid, but I've grown a much greater appreciation for it. It's it's such good body horror. Mm-hmm. I was gonna say, this is probably the first body horror I ever uh, watched. Yeah. You know what? The most thing the most effective like little moment for me is when he licks his fingers and falls asleep and then wakes up and it's on his fingers and his tongue. That oh, makes me want to die. Yeah. <laughs> I, I discovered when I was younger. Also, watch, a- he's watching old school, probably WWWF, if I had to guess. Maybe from 82, yeah. It was, it was, it was Some three Samoans are in there and like maybe Bob Backlund or something. I think maybe? so, yeah. I think it was Backlund. Yeah, yeah. Pretty it's, sweet time capsule if you're into wrestling. When I was See, younger, you, I found out. You have out, all these memories. Go, go ahead. Oh, sorry, I found out there's a disease called like hairy tongue disease. And where your, where your tongue grows hair. And that to me is like the worst thing that could ever happen to you. Because like I'm a, like, when it comes to food, I'm big on texture. And uh, so like, for him, like you said, with his tongue growing, gra- growing moss or, pl- or vegetation, same here. Like that just, like I, I wouldn't even wait it for it to cover my body. I'd be like blowing, I know, I would be, I'd be killing myself once my tongue got infected. <laughs> Uh, one thing I love about this episode, it wastes no time. Like, literally the first frame is the meteor coming down. Yeah. We don't get any no backstory, really. When we get backstory a little bit, sprinkle through, but it's just right in there. And so of course, you, all are, you all are saying you remember all the body horror from being younger. I mean, my biggest impression of this as a kid was just Stephen King looking up and going, meteor shit! And, <laughs> like, that got cemented in my brain. There, for, there, it, in hindsight, there's something really interesting here. It, like, I I can't watch old movies now, not in the frame of therapy. I think Mondo mm. was saying that. Like, bro, just go to therapy. Like, that. like what you're getting <laughs> an interesting look at, like, this character is like a sort of 
I don't, I don't want to be offensive, like simple country folk mm-hmm. who had a domineering father figure that then died. And it's like, you feel he's alone and trying to be independent, but he is so just like moored to like shame because like, I mean, that's all of what the flashbacks are about. It's all, yeah. he screwed something up that he like couldn't have really understood was going to happen. Right? He breaks the thing and it's like, then he just shame spirals and then he's imagining this doctor, doctor, this person at the college, right? Who's mm-hmm. like this person judging him and punishing him. And man, it's so interesting. And then like the father actually like, you feel Stephen King working some shit out here, I feel yeah, like, which yeah. is not maybe uh, because of how it's a little of the goofy, goofier of all the stories because of the music and mm-hmm. Stephen King's like, who, who, you know, like, but there's something deeper there that's interesting yeah, i mean his, yeah, his motivation is to basically sell this meteorite so that way he can feel like he's successful and thus being successful gain his father's you know posthumous make his father happy yeah. and and you talk about this was stephen king's like out of his mind booze coke era well jordy verrill's like an alcoholic like he's got boo mm-hmm. this was the movie that taught me what ripple was because eventually when the internet was around i googled it i'm like i need to know what this is like what is ripple I, I do think if it was twenty, if this was made in twenty twenty three, he'd have been on a computer uh, covered in moss, uh, blaming CNN and the Democrats. <laughs> right, <laughs> an indelible image for me is Stephen King, half covered in moss, pouring an entire bottle of vodka into a pitcher of orange juice, and then using the bottle yes. to start to get yes. like furiously, and then chugging it. Like he's doing some pretty interesting physical acting that that I think comes across. Well, at least according to IMDb, he was told to act like Wiley e. Coyote. Just like just go that. balls to the wall. That is that's very amazing. interesting. Yes, and like I, it's interesting because it's actually like if you played this straight, it would be like really horrifying. Yeah, I mean, it's horrifying. It, the concept is extremely horrifying. You'd be in like Cronenberg land, which isn't always the yes. most fun place to be. <laughs> right, but you take you take a non actor and tell him to go over the top, and it just kind of all somehow works. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, just, it adds to that comic styling, and that's that's mm-hmm. perfect. Yes. Well, and it's yeah, that EC thing again. It's that mm-hmm. comedy plus horror and somehow makes the horror more horrible, even though it lightens it up in the same way. Yeah. yeah it's really Romero really understanding the tone that, that is needed for yeah. each of these. And now that you brought up Wile E. Coyote, I'm bummed we didn't see Stephen King painting a realistic uh, tunnel on the side of his house. <laughs> Another great moment to me that's just chef's kiss is um, when after he kills himself, we start backing out of his house slowly. I think it's like all crossfades. Like we, mm-hmm. and then it's like in the house and then the porch. And then, and while that's happening, we see that everything is already covered on his farm and it's spreading. And also there's just the great, like there's a, a weather forecast in the background, I assume on the television, like morning mm-hmm. news or something. And they're like, well, good news for farmers. It's going to rain all week. And it's like, I love that contrast of the peppy, happy weatherman saying something and just thinking that like impending doom will be on the way you know and then we get the um street sign that says like portland this way castle rock that way so we're getting all this yeah so that's another thing from this movie that i've strongly considered getting tattooed is that wood Mm. sign that says Mm. like castle rock and boston on it and stuff oh that'd be cool cool. and and a nice little deep cut there too yeah i like deep cuts you know i don't like horror shirts that are like big name of the movie i'm like listen i don't need to have talk to people like they know what it is great right i don't mind those i like a horror short 
I like yeah. a horror short that makes you or a shirt that makes you work for it. Like if you are by somebody yes. and they recognize it, you're like, okay, we're on the same wavelength there because uh, right. nobody else would know what this is. Yeah, my my favorite shirt I own is my Sutter is my Sutter Kane rule shirt because it's it's total ripoff of Monster Squad and in the mouth of Mad is like two of my favorite Perfect. movies of all time. I love yeah. it. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, does anyone else think that some of the plants that are growing look a little bit like weed plants? No, Jason. <laughs> Interesting. Get your mind out of the gutter. I'm just kidding. You know what it reminds me of for some reason I don't really have an explanation for it is like Fraggle Rock a little bit and it's a little bit like <laughs> the texture of the plants you can see yeah. how they're sort of like fabric-y kind of. I can of. see that. Yeah. Okay. I could definitely see that. I also wonder in Creepshow too it, it kind of reminds me like the, they had to have taken the raft from this, right? Where it's just a spreading it's similar, ecological yeah. kind of a disaster. Possibly. Um, all right. Jody, next. Right. Next up is something to tide you over. Uh, you have a rich guy who finds out his wife is cheating on him, and uh, he gets both her and the man who is who she's having an affair with, and buries them in the sand up to their neck, right where the tide's coming in. Puts a TV so that they can see each other, and uh, they're they're not near each other on the beach, but they can see each other on the TVs. And they both drown, and then they come back and do the same thing to him. Again, very simple concept. And again, waste no time whatsoever. We start no. with a knock on the door oh, of the plant man. starting. Like we could have had like ten minutes of like uh, Leslie Nielsen's character figuring things out, but no, mm -hmm. we go right to I it. I am so obsessed with Ted Danson's apartment in this movie. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I don't even know what you call it. I could try it, but I'd probably be wrong. Is it Art Deco? I don't know. Is it mid-century modern? But it's like, it's like wood paneling and shag carpets and weird-shaped couches and some weird fish round-looking fish tanks that are built into the wall. Or so. I don't know. Like, I love it. I want to. Oh no, he's got tile. He's got like big green, like probably asbestos-filled tile <laughs> in his living room. These were the kind of houses that as a kid I would see on movies and think, oh, that's what cool people, that's a cool house. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I mean, Leslie Nielsen and Ted Danson, dude. And Gay, I mean, she doesn't get to do much, but Galen yeah, Ross, Ross from yeah. Dawn of the Dead, yeah. Yeah. Um, this is my second favorite one, Same. definitely. Like, yeah, I agree. Mm -hmm. Leslie Nielsen is just so much fun. The mind games, <clears> the <throat> the atmosphere of like, you know, I lived in New England for a while on and off and like the I love the beach, but there's something really neat when you live in a place where the beach always is, like going there and off times of year when there's nobody there mm -hmm. and the atmosphere is different from kind of what your brain's expecting. Like the first time I saw snow falling over the ocean. I remember being like, well, I'll never forget that. That's insane. Yeah. Um, and, but he, that's what you get here. It's like fall feeling, either fall yeah. or spring, but it's like cold. It's very overcast. Yeah. yeah so, I think mean, naturally just, people equate the beach with tropical climates or California or Hawaii and not yeah. realizing that like that'd be, like, it'd be buried up to your neck and have and cold it's like, water rushing in over you. would be terrible. Mm. You feel it so viscerally when you're watching it. It doesn't matter how many times you've seen it. Like, and, and Leslie Nielsen, it, it's so much of it is about him. First of all, he's really funny. Like the way he keeps going on about cleaning your VCR heads and like <laughs> wire, you really ought to like dust this system off. Like I can relate to that kind of uh, obsession. But also like, it's like he's ignoring um, 
Ted Danson, right? Like he doesn't care. Ted Danson's freaking out. He's like, you really ought to like clean these tape heads. <laughs> you know, it's another rich character um, who clearly feels he lives above regular rules and laws who, who thinks of his wife as a possession that is yeah. his, mm-hmm. you talk, I mean, you know, you guys mentioned toxic masculinity, like that he's, stuff is pretty interesting as well. He's rich. Well, so he's also, got whatever you want, but the way he plays it, just matter of fact too, is pretty chilling. Like, like, uh-huh. like he's sitting here, he's killing these two people in the most horrific of ways. And then he goes home and he, pours himself takes you know he turns on the tv and then like he rushes to get himself a glass of liquor because he doesn't want to miss anything that's happening where and do you think that drink is like a vodka soda i've been wondering this for like 40 years it's like, like straight what is gin. That drink? i was thinking straight gin <laughs> that's what it looked like to me but doesn't but... he mix it with like a little bit of like fizzy looking stuff or something I I, if like he did i didn't soda water that. in there but he's got I mean, a velour also... or but it was probably velvet honestly like a full velvet <laughs> 80s tracksuit thing which like you mentioned like no there's no way you're wearing underwear on that because it probably feels amazing mm-hmm. so why would you do that <laughs> everything just swing again, free Le- leslie nielsen just went on to have this career of just straight comedy like one after another or you know with uh, right. uh hot shot movies and repossessed and dracula dead loving it and even did the scary movie movies so it's like to me he's always been this like big comedy actor he's mm-hmm. so silly he was also and in wwf and searching for the apparently, undertaker Oh my god! But like he started like with Forbidden Planet in the fifties and had this whole serious career before yeah. he turned comedy. He played and he played a lot of villains. And Creepshow is actually mm-hmm. an interesting um, transition if you think about it because yeah. it's both things. Like he's playing a villain, but he's funny as hell. Yeah, right. And this was right at that point where he, because he had made Airplane before this, so he had done some okay. of the comedy stuff. But this was kind of the serious side of him with that comedic edge yeah. in there before he went you know straight parody and spoof all the time one of my favorite moments in this is when the crab is walking around ted yeah. danson's head first of all you just feel that fear like it, it makes mm-hmm. me uncomfortable just thinking about the idea of not being able to move my my limbs right and then the crabs and then leslie nielsen comes out and he's like oh he's like he makes some crack about how he's getting revenge for all your relatives all his relatives you ate at the you know some french restaurant or something it's just it's so good. Uh, the other thing I will say is I always I kind of hate this one trope. It doesn't like take me out of it, but when someone's got a gun on you and they're making you dig your own grave or make like make you get in the hole, they're just gonna go kill on, just, you. Yeah. Yeah, just, just get at them. Just shoot me, like because. Well, or at least take your shot. Yeah. Rush them with yeah. the mm-hmm. thing. You got a shovel. Right? Yeah, guns. Yeah, yeah. I'm not gonna dig my own grave and die exhausted, and then we're gonna get into a hole. <laughs> if boss, if boss Rutten, Mondo, to talk your language, ever taught me anything, <laughs> it's that on a gun you close the gap. Yes, you gotta close the distance. With a knife, you run away. With a gun, you run towards. That's her dad's voice. I, I, I still no no no. no. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> I like to picture me saying that's my four year old daughter going to daycare. Like, remember, God. run away from a knife. That's really funny. If you ever watch, there's a guy on, on Instagram called Detroit Dust, who for some reason always has an earpiece, you know, he's never talking to anybody, and he shows self-defense techniques, and then half half people will read the videos, and it's basically like a guy pointing a gun at someone, and he goes through the technique, and next you know, he's in heaven. Like, what the fuck? Like, oh yeah, because that shit <laughs> right. doesn't work in real life. If someone pulls a gun and you, just, just give them what they want. Like, it's just, you got a 50 shot, I, but I'm not getting in that fucking hole. <laughs> I've always really wondered, I would love to see, I don't know if there's ever been a good behind the scenes doc on this, and I'm not really a big physical media guy these days, but 
I always wanted to see how they shot that thing with mm. Ted Danson underwater. Like, there's the cool mm -hmm. light. Like, yeah. in the very last time we see him, the light lights up behind him and his hair's floating. And, like, you can't move when you're in that. So I imagine it's, like, a shallow tank yeah. with somebody who's standing right by with a Respirator. air thingy. Yeah, but yeah, I don't know how actors do that. That's pretty cool. There, there's a really um. He told a story years ago about how when they dressed him up like the like the gross grotesque zombie at the very end that his daughter was on set and his daughter was like mm -hmm. four or five, and um. So all he was doing was like I he's like I can't let my daughter see me like this. I don't want to scare her. He goes. Then she just runs right up to him. She goes, "Hi, dad." <laughs> like just was not phased. <laughs> was not phased. I mean, with the zombie outfit at all. It looks like they're both wearing about fifty pounds of rubber. They're oh, very it looks, intense. It's so uncomfortable. Suits. Very yeah. very cool. Very very cool makeup though. Very very cool effects. Oh, but Eric, I do have good news for you. I thought that there was one. Uh, there is a documentary called Just Desserts, The Making of Creep Show, and it's streaming on Screenbox right now. So, Jody, I'm not making this up. I just got chills. Yeah, it exists. Incredible. Uh, quick shout out to Screenbox, too, because like they're, they're going to take all kinds the of good stuff on there lately. They're gonna Can take the one of you shutter. text me that? Because I, we're, I'm going to forget by the end yeah, of the show. We'll do. But that might be what I do right after uh, this. Uh, Eric, there's also a category on Screenbox called uh, Scares Under 80 Minutes. It's, oh. uh, it's, it's near and dear to my heart as well, sir. Like I love <laughs> um, another shout out to to the the sound work in this one that mm. because they after, when they're zombies, their voices sound like they're still underwater, oh, so and that good. is such a cool effect. It's mm -hmm. so it's so the line too when he keeps saying he pulls a gun on me. He goes, you, he goes, you can't kill what's already dead. And I was like, oh, such a good line. <laughs> Uh, if one you thing, can hold your breath, like they're just shouting yeah. at him. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love this one. So again, I was reading on DB, so take it all with a grain of salt. But supposedly there is an, they were going to do a different ending where he would call the cops to try to stop the zombies, and then the cops would show up, and the zombies would disappear. But then there's a shot where you see all these other videotapes he has, like in his bedroom, mm -hmm. which I guess are other like snuff films that he's made. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I wow. would imagine, so yeah. He Holy gets crap. arrested and put in oh, the gas shit. chamber, and the last shot is him saying. I can hold my breath for a long time while he's being gassed. That was like huh. storyboarded, but I guess they, they, they decided like, wow. to cut it down. I like that, but it almost would have been mind. too dark for this. Uh, almost yeah. been too dark for yeah. well, And it maybe sometimes the, the best answer is the simplest. Yeah. yeah. Right. Oh, the zombie's getting direct revenge is probably. Yeah, it makes better. more sense. Now, I got to say, Leslie Nielsen, another incredible house. He is a sunken living room yes. that I would, yeah. kill, I would kill someone for. I, I, I love his house. And, and, and he had the, uh, the wall that went up with all his VHS players there. Mm -hmm. Like, imagine. Yes. Come on. It was so cool. I, I did love, too, when he finds a TV and he looks at the shredded cable and goes, oh, they must have been taken out by the sea. And I'm like, oh. Oh, we just know what? bad things. We know bad things are in store for you, sir. I love that scene. Like the 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 sun is setting. We see him. It's the first time we see him like a little off his game. Yeah. Like mm -hmm. it's the first time he does not seem like supremely cool and confident. And so that's a pretty like good moment in the film, I think. And the shots too they do of the I love I love in old movies when they have the shots of the video cameras. When you just see the video yeah. cameras, because you're just waiting for something to happen in that video camera shot. I love that the the TV and the bucket are both half buried by sand. Yeah. Because it gives you such a feeling for the sort of like power of the ocean and the mm -hmm. way the impermanence of that space, right? Like it's whatever it is when you're there today is not going to be, even if it looks the same to you, it's not the same that it was. It's turned itself over, you know? All right. Jody, the crate. All right, so this one's probably my favorite one. I'm with you. I, I agree. Yeah. 
Um, we get some great effects here with uh, some creature work. So, uh, again, simple story. There is a janitor who... Um, wait, hang on. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, I was catching my brain back up. What happened to uh, you? Got, you've got a professor at a college uh, who gets a package from... Uh, it's the Arctic Expedition? Yeah. And uh, there is a monster inside that package called Fluffy. And then... Uh, well, that, they, fi- they find the package underneath an old stair, buried underneath right. basically an old stairwell at the college. Right. Uh, I love that he and finds then, it because he drops his quarter for the soda machine. And he wants, he's, yes, he just that's wants where I was quarter. going with the janitor. I knew what I'm, I was... <laughs> I knew I'm I had trying, something in mind and then my brain got all scrambled. I'm trying to give you the full Schnorr's experience here getting interrupted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do it. Um, yeah, fix, fix all of my synopses <laughs> for me. Uh, and uh, this professor has a terrible wife uh, named Billy who constantly berates him, is just a mean, awful person. And the professor uses Fluffy to take care of her. I will say that's my line. I'm not attracted to Adrian Barbeau in this segment. In this well, she, segment specifically. In this segment, she's so mean. Like she's she's so, she's so mean. It's not fun anymore. No, so no, no. It's it's not a fun meme. <laughs> this is how you know we're she's not a, we're we're not playing. So this is how you know she's a trash person, right? So towards the end, when she comes back home and she finds a note that he wrote her to get to lure her into the into the college. First of all, she gets home and she pours herself like a glass of milk and then pours like milk and scotch. Yeah, whiskey right into the milk. But then uh, she drives to the college and then she, she still has the glass of scotch. Like she oh drove no. there with <laughs> no the glass of that scotch. That used to be milk. a big, like liquor and milk used to be a big thing. Really? Mm. I've never yeah, heard of that. My, like, my mom used to drink that exact thing she was drinking. Oh my God. Like it made my stomach turn. We're just not gonna, thinking about We're not going to get it deeper into that. <laughs> <laughs> You know this. This is a different Adrian Barbeau than the one that you see in like the fog talking with her radio voice. Oh my God, she's yeah. so that Adrian like, Barbeau is. <laughs> she's so warm and soothing in the fog. I mean, it's a testament to her range. And here yeah. it's like she is a praying mantis. Like she is just so abra- so abrasive. Actually, okay, so we got to talk about this scene though in the beginning where I'm pretty sure that they edited the original recorded. Like I think this is ADR. Where she says, um, so she's being very abrasive at this college party. We're getting like, yeah. no one likes this woman. And she meets these new people in town who are new. Prof- the guy's a professor. She's the wife, whatever. And I can't remember the thing that leads up to it, but she's like, me, oh, I told, I, t- I know, okay, never mind. I do know this verbatim. She goes, I told Parker if he'd just get his ashes hauled every once in a while, he wouldn't have to act like th- that. He's, she says like Emily Vanderbilt or Va- she's like trying to search for a name and then she goes whoever that etiquette crotch is is what the line is 10,000% she said the other C word and for, mm. at some point it got dubbed over like you can see her mouth the word the other C word God. and I just want to again I want a whole documentary just on what happened that day like what, <laughs> you know, why did you decide to get take, get rid of this that's so interesting I, I think I brought it up on um, last week's podcast but there was a uh, episode of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia recently and I was just in the hotel room and I was watching it I love that show and they just dropped the C word like 30 times on just network not just cable TV I'm like <laughs> I didn't know you could st- even do that <laughs> I mean the Apparently brilliance of that- this Apparently the C word was too much for the uh, creep show set. Yeah, it's just fascinating. That was the line. But FX the, uh, is like, it's game. Like, just do it. <laughs> the C word, uh, the C word, Jesus Christ. The brilliance of this 
the writing in this one is that you get pretty much all the context you need in like three minutes. Oh yeah. Just that opening scene is so well scripted. Um, you you know exactly who Henry is, what his relationship with his wife is like, his relationship with his best friend. You know the best friend is kind of a womanizer. Um, he he has a his first vision of killing his wife in this first scene. Oh, I love that. That's one of my favorite scenes um, in the whole yeah. creep show. Because the guy looks at him after he's killed his wife and goes, good shot, old man. <laughs> that you know he's got that big ridiculous like i don't even know what kind of gun that is like but it but an old tiny western gun like that, a magnum or something that's what's so great about it because in his in his mind that's the that's like the, the, the gun that john wayne would have or clint easter would have mm-hmm. like he's gonna have the yeah. same gun mm-hmm. and it's man i struggle with this like i not struggle is not the right word like i could definitely see someone um watching this now and being like, boy, this is pretty problematic. This guy's like daydreaming about killing his wife. But I would, having lived a lot of life, I think that like in a relationship this toxic, it's Mm -hmm. pretty understandable for you to have feelings of anger and aggression like this. Like it definitely is visceral to see it played out in real life, even though it's fantasy, right? Like, but that's, you know, that's what we're here for, I guess. And with with this one too, it's not so much like that he is a violent person. It's that he is so beat down by this yes. woman that yes. he's he's running out of any kind of option for how to make his life better. And so right. when he starts having these fantasies, it's easy to go, <coughs> okay, I, I get it. <laughs> like I get why you would want to take Billy out. Well, I'm looking yeah. at Adrian Barbeau's filmography, and like I see the progression where the level. So it's like the fog. Escape from New York, and then the crate. It's like that's that's like her mm-hmm. range mm-hmm, mm-hmm. on there, and she's actually done a lot of great voice acting. Um, so, so she was the computer in the thing as like the only female character Ooh, in that movie. That's, I'm not sure I knew that. That's and cool. then she was actually Catwoman in the Batman uh, animated series in the '90s, and she's mm. done a bunch of other like voice acting. So she really knows how to use her voice, and yeah, she really gets to your soul in this episode. There's even in this one, I would say too. There are some some thoughts about money and class, like mm-hmm. in particular this the the banter and stuff between the janitor and the professor. Like mm-hmm. you can feel the human hierarchy of who's above who by just the way yeah. they speak to each other, mm-hmm. and they're both very nice to each other. But you almost feel like you're watching aliens communicate with each other, right? Like they are just they they could not live in different worlds. And the janitor, like, he says, like, he's he dug it out and called the professor because he thinks there might be something in there that's worth money, basically. Right. And that's motivating him. So, like, even though it's this is the one with maybe the least money-centric tie, like, it's still in there. There's still some stuff going on with class and that kind of thing. Yeah, like, the why, this, why does this professor call the cops or something immediately? Why is he... Right. He has, the, he has all the evidence right there. But he doesn't consider that that the, that human life to be enough to. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I, call I just authorities over. I, I think it's also I, you assume that the cops is a monster. Like you're in call the cops. Hey, this monster killed these two people, and you're standing with blood got, on you. Like, oh, let's be honest, dude. They're not gonna. He's got the monster trap. That's not going anywhere. I, I think this one has the most atmosphere for me of all of them. I think maybe to tide you over is probably in the running for that. But mm-hmm. like. Simple little writing things like saying, "Oh, uh, Charlie, he's working in the basement. There's no, there's no air conditioning. It's August, right?" That 
those little things kind of put you in a place and a feeling. My favorite moment is, and we're, I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but like um, Hal Holbrook's monologue at the end, he says this line that this is like, this is my favorite line in like cinema history, honestly. <laughs> and you're going to be like, what, what? But he says, the timing couldn't have been more perfect. He's like, all of the students left two weeks ago and school doesn't start for another week or whatever, whatever, he, however he says it. I just don't know that there's been other lines in movies that fully placed me in a time and place than that mm -hmm. line. And he delivers it so well. And it's over this montage, right? After we've just seen the uh, finale. So it's just, I don't know. It always stuck with me. Well, then watching it again, when you notice that he drugs his friend so he'll sleep, so he won't go to the cops, so he'll have time not to go to the cops. To go do it, right? Yeah, it just adds like another level of nefariousness. I love that actor. The dude slam and drinks with him, and he's like, I'm blasted out of my gourd. But he says it in like the fanciest, most English professor way possible. Mm -hmm. Now, I, to, to be a little bit of a contrarian, this is the one that drags a little bit for me. There's a little bit of the back oh, and forth. so interesting. And like the the one where he gets the other student killed, or whoever the other like the assist associate professor, like that that this is this one doesn't move as well as the others, hmm. and that's purely my opinion. But compared to how swiftly the other ones go, that's interesting. But the performances definitely make up for it. I mean, Hal Holbrook's amazing, and I haven't yeah. actually seen him in that much stuff. I remember he, catching him in um, he was in. He was recently in me. He, Sons of Anarchy. He played. Uh, yeah, I was, like, was he really? Sure? Yeah, really he played like uh, Gemma's, Gemma, Gemma's uh, dad, who was dying from dementia, <laughs> dementia, and was fantastic in it. Well, I know his big thing was like he played Mark Twain on Broadway for like fifty mm. years or something. Oh wow! He I didn't did know a that. one. He did a one man like I'm Mark Twain and I'm one man like that's it. And he yeah. did that. That was his like legacy. That role. Well, and then he was in All the President's Men. He was in The Fog, and then he was just like so much TV. Okay, he yeah, was that, in a movie in the seventies. Uh, Capricorn One is the name yeah. of it. O.J. Simpson is in it, mm -hmm. and it's basically in a world where all of the moon landings have been faked, and now they're trying to do it for real. There's something about it's something about those lines, but he's like the yeah. team leader. It's, it's really good. Yeah, As a kid who grew up watching too much 80s TV, he was also on Designing Women a lot. Yeah. Uh, Into it? He, well, yeah, he was, uh, this, again, watched way too much TV. He uh, His character dated Julia Sugarbaker's character, and in Sugar real life, Baker? he was married to Dixie Carter, who played that character. And wow. so that was his real-life wife, who he was acting off uh, on Designing Women. Oh, wow. Dixie Carter, huh? Good for him. Designing um, Women and Golden Girls. That's, that's my uh, childhood. <laughs> And then he was on the episode of The Sopranos and The West Wing. So he was just all over the place. I can remember as a child in the 90s at this point telling people Hal Holbrook was my favorite actor and to just <laughs> blank stares. Like, <laughs> like why? <laughs> that just sums me up as a kid, if you need to know. Uh, I, I, I think the score really shines here. Mm. And this has this one track in it when... Uh, Hal Holbrook starts setting his trap for Adrian Barbeau. He's cleaning up the mess. He writes her the note. Then we see her come home. This score kicks in that's like this rolling, um, intensifying piano riff that is just gorgeous. 
and just creates the best atmosphere for the scene. It makes it mm -hmm. so intense a scene to just live in. That's when we see her drink, drinking her weird milk liquor and laughing. She is so delighted that his friend is in trouble. Yes. Like you've never yes. seen anyone happier than this woman finding out that Hal Holbrook's friend beat a co-ed and she's hiding under the stairs. <laughs> but potentially to death. Like, <laughs> the way. Yeah. yeah. She is like tickled. Yeah, like she's so happy because it puts her in a position of power like that. Mm -hmm. And Henry, again, like he's so, he knows, he knows how she views him and he plays into that to manipulate her to come to the school. Yeah. And that's just like, man, that's just good writing. And I like that she doesn't have any kind of like, reason for being this way she just is this way this is who well, she is it's never She's a given terrible to us. person we just enter their lives and this is the state of it right you know, right. we've also known someone that might not be as bad as this but it's like within that realm of just like this is just not an awful person we, negative and yeah. Yeah. she so she goes there and meets him and it's so good he's so fun he's stifling laughter while he's trying to tell her the story and it's so funny because he knows what he's doing and she doesn't. And she's like, are you insane? Like, have you cracked up? And he's just like, you'll see. And he like throws her under the stairs. And then he starts giving her the what for. He finally unloads on her. Like everything emotionally that he's been holding in, he just like unloads it all. And you're just, the tension is building and you're waiting for this thing to jump out. And then they do this brilliant thing where it's like the tide falls and it's silence. And she is, and the thing doesn't come out. And she's like, what is wrong? And then she just chops him down, like in the most absolute brutal way, leading up to and through, like calling out his manhood, like, and like sexual prowess. And that's where, you know, it's so interesting. I was just listening to um, Plug It Up uh, and Elizabeth was on and they were talking about the birds and they were talking yeah. about this idea of this connection between the birds and sort of the 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 the, mo the emotional state of the women in the film, which was really brilliant. Like I had never thought of that before. And I'm just for the first time feeling like there's something there between Henry and the monster. It's like the because no like it it takes her to like fully tear him down for that monster to finally come out. And there's always this moment, again, like the, the things in this movie that I wondered about for 30 years, where the monster pops out and it's great because the monster is ridiculous. Like it's scary, but it's yeah. very cartoony. It's got big cartoony werewolf eyes. And the, the monster like grabs her and then looks at him and he says something. And I am always like, is he saying like, you're welcome? Like, there's some kind of connection there between him and the monster for a second. Uh, where he's like, I got you, bro. Or like, <laughs> fine, I'll just fucking kill her. Fine. He and just then he eats her. She's so over the top. She's like, ah, she's like silent movie acting, screaming. Mm -hmm. All the lights go red. I mean, man. It, you can always equate. The end of that segment is so electric and brilliant. Mm -hmm. it, you can almost equate it kind of like the monster doesn't come out because. He's in a good spot. He's happy. He thinks he's about to kill his wife, who he hates. So the monster's like, "Oh, he's in a good mood. Why am I going to pop out?" And then the minute she attacks him, and his rage comes through, now he's now he's angry. That's when the monster attacks. So. Well, and you can also, I think, think about it maybe in terms of Henry's own strength and power. Like he's trying. Yeah. He's trying so hard to like fight back against her, and he just doesn't have it in him. And 
like you could, I may, you could make a tie. I feel like between like that monster getting up and like Henry finally awakening within himself and like embracing his his identity and his power, and then that monster just eats the crap out of her. Yeah. <laughs> And then uh, gets and then the, the brilliant scene, yeah. like there's so much tension. It's dead quiet after that. The sound drops out. I have such brilliant use of sound in this movie. The sound disappears, and then he's slowly trying to eke like a lock into the chain, and then that's when that monologue kicks in. That's so good. Yeah, and, and then, go ahead. No, so I always love too that 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 um like you have this giant monster from the 1800s that has survived in this crate, but that crate had to smell really bad too because there's probably so much. So much poop. There's definitely a lot of poop in that crate. <laughs> I mean, in the modern days, if I and again, like I want to acknowledge nostalgia and like we, I think we judge older movies differently than newer movies. Okay. If I saw this now, I'd be like, "Yo, that monster's not alive after 300, 200, and, whatever." No, <laughs> but, but I do think it's, it's always it's always really cool. It's like this monster is destroying all these things. Has has great power, but this lock is gonna this lock is what's gonna I got hold this. this yeah, <laughs> ancient right. lock. Yeah, I love. However, they achieve the effect of the cliff that he drops him off. It kind of looks like a matte painting. It looks like yeah. there's some kind of camera trickery going on there. But, but the result is it feels, um, larger than life in a comic book mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. That, well, mm-hmm. then we end with the very last bit of the monster finally getting out. So it's like you know we we thought we were safe with that tiny little lock, and then nope, it's out there. I like how throughout this movie, while there are some like realistic moments, it's always got this kind of hyper-realistic feel to it that goes, you know, into that comic booky realm with the matte paintings mm-hmm. and hyper-realistic reactions. It. You know, it's it's over the top, but not in a goofy way. You know, mm-hmm. like her like her scream, where you know right. she goes into full ah. silence ah! <laughs> and the lights and everything. But it it works. It works mm-hmm. for this whole thing. Yeah. And I just I, I just in love with this final shot of him. Like what we see that the monologue is actually you know well we know like he's talking to his friend. It's just we're seeing different pictures. And then they're sitting there playing chess, and they're playing chess both literally and figuratively because mm-hmm. there's some sparring, my, like subtle verbal sparring where it's like mm-hmm. how do you know I didn't call the police. You know, and he's like, you didn't. So I'm like, uh, yeah. I didn't do anything. And he's like, uh, yeah, no, you didn't. I don't know. You didn't do anything at all. <laughs> yeah, now uh, I'm wondering if like, that Brian scene is the Sing- best. Yeah, I wonder if Brian Singer like stole that scene for the first X-Men movie. <laughs> I mean, listen, two people like... Well, playing chess, yeah, but... <laughs> playing Maybe. mental chess while playing chess. It's not the biggest leap in the world. It's just, yeah. you know, I love the way uh, uh, Professor Dude is slunk down his chair. Henry, meanwhile has had a shower. <laughs> he is wearing a velvet um, like golf shirt tucked in, looks spry as ever, just ready to embrace life. And the different, oh, sorry, the difference in body language is so good. And the camera slowly pans out. Mm-hmm. And it's great. All right. I take it back. This movie's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Not nostalgia. All right. Our last segment. And this is the one I actually remember the most seeing as a kid i feel like maybe i caught it on network tv too um we have a rich man who has this like hermetically sealed apartment because he's obsessed with cleanliness Mm -hmm. and uh bugs start to come in i I think the reason why i remember this one so much is because it icked me out more than anything else i hate cockroaches in particular 
And so I've read some some crazy ugh. stories about the cockroaches on set uh-huh. mm-hmm. and the wranglers and stuff. Like I swear I read somewhere that every one of those roaches, like you can't get them back once you let them out. Basically, that like they're gonna just disappear. God, yeah. Oh my god. And that was on like, that set. I could be making that up, but it sounds good. So. It, it, I swear I read something like that that like there was an issue with the cockroaches. Makes sense. Well, that me. was the most expensive part of the whole movie, and the there I think they used like twenty five thousand. Mm-hmm. Like, and this is why, like, as good as CGI can be, they'll never get that that feeling. Well, that, uh, totally, man. Yeah. So this guy, who'd you call this guy? Is this like a Howard Hughes kind of character? Yeah, that, I that's that, definitely yeah. what they're playing off of. Yeah, right. He's he's rich beyond anyone's imagination in his thirty four hundred dollar a month New York City penthouse apartment, which always makes me want to kill myself. And um, <laughs> but he, like he's terrified of germs. Like he's complaining. He's super racist. Uh, you know, and complaining to people about the bugs in his apartment and the germs and blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, like, you know, we watch a slow invasion of his world. Um, this is disgusting. It's yeah. really gross. If you have trouble with cockroaches, which I do. I do too. I didn't grow up like, Jody, I don't know your experience, but um, I never really thought about this until I met Elizabeth, but like she grew up in the South and is just non pretty nonplussed, as nonplussed as you can be by cockroaches. We don't really have, if you have roaches up here in the north, it's because you're dirty. So, yeah. like, I didn't really ever have that experience. I've probably seen one in real life, a legit live roach, twice. Oh, wow. Like, well, I, 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 I never out. was around them as a kid, but in our first apartment that we lived in, uh, you know, cheap, newlywed apartment type stuff, uh, roaches would get in from, like, the neighbors. Yeah. And, they always have just disturbed me because they always it felt dirty. Like that's what it. Yeah. Like roaches Again, represent. So dirty much of it is social stigma. Yeah, 100%. yeah. Roaches represent dirty, and, and, and I, especially in this segment, his whole house is like this white, like hermetically white, sealed, clean. Thing. Yeah, and so every little bit of that getting in just feels like almost like corruption getting into his world. Yes. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you could definitely argue the whole thing is not real that the whole thing is more about right. his, him cracking up right like up until that last shot well, well. <laughs> you, i think you could still debate it but i take your point yeah right well it's done One so the, well the too. most disgusting thing in this is when he's something about him pouring his flakes into the um oh. into the food yeah. processor he's not paying attention and you can fully just see them coming out of the box <sighs> like I don't. I have a lot of like dietary restrictions now, so uh-huh. I eat largely fresh, like fruits, like things that don't really come in packages. But I used to all the time, and that was always a huge fear. Like, I don't think I've ever like poured a box of cereal without feeling a momentary feeling of anxiety of like what's going on in there. So you know mm-hmm. I mean? we dealt with the beauty of pantry moths uh, about years back. If you guys know what those are. No. All it takes is you go and you buy, let's say you buy some green from the store and it has. Right. A, and there's a, some, some like worms in it. And, and, but they turn to moths and then it gets into everything you own. Like we had to throw away basically everything in our cabinets and we discovered it because I think we're using sesame seeds and we poured on sesame. Like, why is that sesame seed moving? Ooh. So, like, I, so that definitely I made my skin had, crawl when I saw that. I've had that I think happen I had with some, flour. 
I think I had some similar things happen like in my first baby apartment back in the day yeah. that I've just blocked out. But now when you're saying that, I'm feeling, I have, I'm having feelings. We never, we never dealt with roaches here, but you will find out here in the, in the desert, um, if you like in our apartment that we have, we were by the pool and you get water bugs, which look like yeah. roaches, yeah, but they'll get, they'll, they'll get in there and they're just, they look like roaches and they're just disgusting. The, the scariest thing I get here in my house is earwigs, which are horrifying <laughs> to be fair. I hate those too. Uh, yeah, they're not cool. I yeah, they, um, just talking about this segment, it's, it's <laughs> oh, squirm-inducing. Like, the entire have, segment gives me... The end so the scene. rest of that scene, so he pours the, the flakes, and he's not even paying attention because he, he's preoccupied by this, like, hostile corporate takeover that he's delighted by and this, this dude who killed himself that he's very happy about. And he's, like, food processing, and then we see him with his little Rubbermaid thing pulling it out, and you can see clearly see, like, bug guts... And I can't remember. I think he sees it right when he goes to eat it or something. Mm -hmm. yeah. Oh God, it's so disgusting. Yeah, then, then he pours out the food, the cereal or mixture. Yes, or whatever, and he and sees them. In there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I lived in the an apartment, and then we got roaches from someone, and then uh, it's, it's 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 a huge pain. And again, for, this is probably the most <laughs> obvious like classism um, episode. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, like he's like the, it's like the middle of the night, and he's demanding. That um, if the his superintendent who isn't even like working, who's like on vacation at Disneyland, doesn't get someone there like in half an hour, he's gonna have him fired. Well, there's a lot going on here too. Like I think you could make the argument that to him, these people that he is speaking to are the roaches. They're yes. one in the same, right? Like there's also we we really intensely see how isolated he is. Like. There's a there's a power in this one to the fact that he only hears people in disembodied voices. Mm -hmm. Even the maintenance guy when he drops by puts his mouth right up to the thing, so we don't even see his eyes. Like we're not even seeing his full face, right? Um, yeah. So there's there's definitely some layers to it. Yeah, this is this might be the most Romero episode uh, segment, like straight Romero. Like I, mm -hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if he had more to write on this than King did. I, I love the I visual. Out, but, I love know. the visual touch of the uh, jukebox. Yes, yeah. which is like kind of the only color. Mm -hmm. But it's yeah, he looks. He looks like he's in like 2001 or something. Like like in mm -hmm. the. He looks like he's like in a Kubrick futuristic yeah. sci-fi movie. And that stands out. And that that you know, sanitary white color looks so perfect with the color of the roaches. It just amplifies that much more. So at the end when you see that room filling up with roaches, it makes my skin crawl to this day. Honestly, the hero of this one is the maintenance guy because um, because of the way he kind of just gleefully mocks him. Honestly, like yeah. mm -hmm. he's he's mocking him with like over the top kindness, and it's kind of the only catharsis you get until the end. Obviously, but you know, because like the the wife of the deceased business guy, she obviously gives it to him pretty good, but he's just nonplussed and she's anguished. So you're not, yeah. you know, you don't necessarily enjoy that. Right, and then we get that final bit where he's just his a, his body just explodes. I can't think of any better way. Uh -huh, erupts. Uh -huh. Yeah, he's just like whoa. And again, that they're not faking that. I mean, obviously it's a dummy, but they're not faking the cockroaches, and that just they are the big ones are called. Um, I wish I could remember where I read this, but uh, they're called Madagascar hissing cockroaches oh, yeah. or something. People, people treat like, those as pets, or people get those. Those as are pets. like the only ones that get that big, apparently. But if you want, I mean, there's like many different varieties. Like they got them all. They got all the the lineup here. This is like Indiana Jones, Ray Lost Ark, snake scene, which I've. I'm, snakes are my thing. I, I snakes freak me well, out. Or Bugs, Temple of I Doom. I don't like, but like yeah, like, Temple of Doom. Real buggy and gross. But yeah, it's like just so much. 
And this is another one of those that this whole movie does so good at making reprehensible characters. But then the punishment that happens to this guy is so bad that even like, I don't feel sorry (laughs) for him because he's awful, but it's still bad like it's still I bad mean, to watch you suck I always, say, too I, far. I always say this when when a movie puts you in a character's perspective in some ways it doesn't matter how bad they are you feel something i'm not saying yeah. you like mm-hmm. rooting for them but whatever the, the film is actively putting you in yeah. the in their shoes like you know well, I, I want him. I, want I don't to be want to have pun- cockroaches yeah. burst out of my body, and so I right, can relate right. to that part of it. Like I want him to be punished horribly, but I'm like, that seems a bit much. But also, like, but think about this: like, in each of these stories, I'm, and now I'm thinking, not all of them, and some of them, at the end, everyone is dead. Mm-hmm. And what that does is leave you, the viewer, with the monster, and that's, I think, partially why that can be scary. Yeah. yeah. In this case, ten billion cockroaches. Yeah, that's and, and and God forbid them bursting out of his body. Like he was already dead when that happened. Like how did his chest? Like right in that Kevin uh, Bacon Friday the Thirteenth yeah. spot where the arrow comes out. Yeah. His chest just so. And the the dummy doesn't even look that good. No, but it's but it's only right. on screen for a second, and it's again like just the fact that it's real gives it weight, even if it yes. doesn't. It's not a perfect yeah. match. Your yeah. focus isn't the dummy. And like if they made this nowadays, it'd be so CGI that the whole thing would oh, look, yeah. the whole thing would look fake and wouldn't have any visceral effect whatsoever. I mean, what movie magic that like they had to pay cockroach wranglers basically. Like they had to pay people <laughs> to source cockroaches. Who like who who has that job? Like do you grow up one day and be like, I just want to wrangle cockroaches? I, Again, according to IMDB, the American Museum of Natural History. Okay. I guess that makes sense. Uh, Apparently, a lot of cockroaches to hand over. I think they did it for like fifty cents a piece or something. <laughs> That's pretty. Uh, expensive. Know, There's a lot. I don't count that, but There's well, a lot. I wonder if they have any random. Maybe by weight, the by volume. Maybe by volume, yeah. That's insane. And it's it's interesting. I'm I'm less attached to this one, because I never saw it that really as a kid. Yeah. Like. Maybe once or twice it came on, but I really remember years later being like, "Oh yeah, there's another thing here." Because I guess when you chop it off and add commercials, then it's a clean two hours, probably, mm-hmm. is what it was. I vividly remember the very, very last scene watching it when I was younger, because I think we, we probably rented it from somewhere. But then I couldn't remember for years like, where that came from. I saw it when I was so young. Mm-hmm. And then finally, when I got you know probably middle school age or in high school and rented it for myself and watched it again, I got to, got to watch this again. I was like, oh, that's where it's from. But, when but, you say the last scene, do you mean the bugs or yes. the wraparound? Oh, the bugs. Yeah. The bugs. Yeah. All right, Jody, bring us home. Yeah, the final wraparound, uh, the garbage collectors find this comic book in the trash can, and uh, they browse through it a little bit and see an advertisement for a voodoo doll. And then inside the house, you see the horrible dad who threw it away, uh, complaining about having a stiff neck, and uh, you see upstairs the little boy has sent off for that voodoo doll, and he's stabbing it right there in the (laughs) neck, getting some revenge on his... Some more cool voice work. They make his voice sound really low and creepy. Yeah. Yeah. I do want to step back for a second. Did we skip the the interlude where Tom Atkins takes the comic book? Because Uh, I thought that's in the beginning. That's like I can't remember. Is there not a middle one? Maybe Mm -hmm. not. So so. I forgot my favorite line in the beginning. Then, which is, um, which is. At least it's not like those books you keep in your sock drawer under your underwear. Yeah. Those sex <laughs> books. 
<laughs> and then you think back handsome. <laughs> oh, God. I can't. I would kill to see what kind of porn 1982 Tom Atkins had in the top. Oh, good lord. I bet, um, I, I, I bet so there's a lot, of, a lot of hair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, man. And then, uh, of course, the little boys played by Kevin's Stephen King's son, uh, Stephen King's son, Joe Hill, uh, huh. just to make it even more mm-hmm. in the I don't family. I noticed that. I love uh I love the the wife the woman who plays Tom Atkins' wife mm-hmm. is such a good actress at playing this sort of like um we don't see him physically hit her but we could assume that that ha- has happened before but her meek she's so meek and like deferent to him um I wonder how this tracks in 1982 like this is a fully abusive father right like mm-hmm. Do people know that in 1982 or are they just like, hey, it's just like my dad. I, I don't really know the answer to that. But she's so good and I love her in the scene. She goes, he's like, oh, God. And she's like, oh, you old bear. Do you want some Ben Gay? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I just love that line. She's, she's you know, she's ironing his shirt in the kitchen. It's very like family ties, but with abuse. Yeah. <laughs> Family ties it, it somehow <laughs> it somehow reminded me of the of the family dynamic in uh, Nightmare on Elm Street too. That's how, that's that's the reminder. Uh, yeah. yeah, I was also thinking about um, Glenn's dad in Nightmare on Elm Street one, where like you know he cuts off the he just mm-hmm. takes the phone off the hook. Yeah, it, yeah. and then I mean all that <laughs> to to tie into the theme of your guys' show, like the 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 transgressive nature of the idea of like first of all. He doesn't want him having these kind of comic books. I mean, that's mm-hmm. ripped right from the history of EC Comics. But also, um, it also, in a cheeky way, like confirms the parents' worst fears, right? That like mm-hmm. the comic book sort of did turn him to violence because it got him this voodoo doll. Um, so that there's an interesting kind of subversion there. Which he wouldn't need if the father wasn't such a piece of shit. Mm-hmm. So, right, there's it, right, right. It shows, both, it shows both sides of it, right? Yeah. Well, because they also make it a point, too, at the end with the garbage collectors. They're looking through, like, oh, x-ray glasses, those won't work, all that. And the only, the only thing that he sent away for was that voodoo doll. Right, like, so it's like, so that actually tracks with all the other segments where it's like, Tom Atkins is a piece of shit. But this is just so on the nose here. Like the kid literally gets revenge with the comic book itself. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He took away. So like I yeah, think there's something heard. about EC Comics too that the idea that it could corrupt you and make you into a little psycho is actually a good thing. Mm-hmm. Like that's part of the fun of it is yeah, these are yeah, yeah, know, yeah. messed up. Well, it, and I imagine mm-hmm. one of the cool things is probably seeing this in nineteen eighty two, maybe so as someone who maybe grew up on EC comics, I bet that wraparound was a probably maybe a snapshot of something that happened in a lot of people's lives when they're young, because I'm sure a lot of parents were taking away EC comics from kids. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Right. And then there they've got this like wish fulfillment of weaponizing something from the comic. Right. Well, because Against, as a kid, um, you feel helpless, especially when you right. live in a house like this, right? Well, and so and the comic the, gives him his power back. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I'm sure the, there's commentary on the government weaponizing the fear of EC Comics to their own means, mm-hmm. like McCarthyism, et cetera, to get control and power. So I'm... So if you're like me and you love all those like mail order stuff from comic books back in the day, mm-hmm. there's a really great book you can get called Mail Order Mysteries, and all oh, it does sweet. is document those and with the person who's actually bought a lot of the stuff and tested it out. I love that. Oh, that's cool. It's a really the only thing book. I ever did was order sea monkeys that 
like never really lived. Yeah, me too. <laughs> and then was like, well, that was depressing. We're not doing that again. <laughs> I'm I'm very obsessed with Tom Savini and whoever this other dude is as the most 1980s ass garbage man you've ever seen. Like, they literally have like longshoreman hats on and like long johns. I don't know why it's not winter. Uh, but I don't know. Like everything about them is wonderful. Yeah, the other guy is named Marty Schiff. He was kind of a producer, friend of George Romero. Oh, he was he played a motorcycle rider in Dawn of the Dead. So a lot of yeah. the people in which this I, were like Savini did too, obviously. Yeah, with Savini. Yeah. So a lot, there's a lot of the smaller actors in this are probably friends or uh, just like um, yeah. part of George A. Romero's troupe of just regulars he would throw in stuff. <laughs> um, I love like he hits the garbage. Truck and yells at it to chew its food yeah. before it swallows. Yeah. Like, uh, you're you're operating the truck, friend. So um, that would be a great like wraparound for another anthology of just two garbage men like picking up garbage from people and just seeing what yeah. they're what they're disposing of. There is a great um, documentary. I think it's called Scream Greats or something from the '80s. It's Tom Savini. It's all about Tom Savini's early career, but it was made in the 80s. And there's a bunch of behind-the-scenes shots from Creepshow. I don't know that there's much narrative to it as much mm -hmm. as, as it is behind-the-scenes stuff. Um, and there is stuff from Dawn of the Dead. And uh, I had him sign a bootleg of it Ooh, 20 years ago that's cool. at a convention. He was cool. I mean, he, he'll pretty much sign anything if you pay him. He doesn't really care. But I did say, uh, you know, I, I almost went to your school and he said, almost isn't good enough. And I was like, cool. And remember that forever. Thanks. <laughs> um, I did ask him for a BGH bumper once. And he just looked at me and said, why? Yeah. And he did it, though, because we use yeah. it sometimes. It's yeah. so funny. He sounds so nonplussed. I love it. Yeah. Um, if you have 20 bucks, I'll do anything. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's interesting. He, like, so he, I, he did the effects here. And like, he probably would have come right off the burning, I would guess, because the burning was 81. I mean, I'm sure he had a bunch yeah. of stuff in the air at the same time, but man, what a like Friday the 13th to the burning to this to the thing. He did the thing? No, that no. was uh, K and B. Yeah. Or those guys before they were that. I'm uh, looking that up. But yeah. So, okay, let's wrap up a little bit. So, let's talk overall thoughts in your favorite segments. Eric, go. Um, this movie is perfect and unimpeachable. Uh, no, I have no idea what a modern person would think of this movie, and I don't want them to tell me. <laughs> My favorite is um, the crate, as discussed, with um, something to tide you over being a close second. My least favorite is. Like I said, I've come around on Jordy Verrill, so it might be the last one, but I still, the last one, again, I think it's like a perfect kind of denouement to the whole thing. Like, it's just a quirky little thing with a great explosive ending, literally, and it works for it. But yeah, that's my favorites. All right, Jody, and have, have your kids watched this? Uh, I've watched it with a couple of them, and uh, they did like it. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm tracking right here with Eric on this one that uh, my favorite is The Crate, and... Uh, than the uh, the one with uh, Leslie Nielsen, but yeah, Jordy Verrill was always uh, one that um, you know was sillier than the other ones, and so maybe you know I didn't give it enough appreciation. But on on more adult viewings of this one, I I, I do like that one too. I, I really there's not a bad segment, no, mm -hmm. not at all. You know, it's not like one of those anthologies where there's some real stinkers thrown into the middle to just kind of hide them. Like it's 
they're all good in their own way. Uh, but yeah, I, the crate is the one that that really has always stood out for me, mainly just because Hell Holbrook and uh, Adrian Barbeau more than anything else. Uh, Mondo. Yeah, I'm right in line with you guys. My least favorite's probably they're creeping up on you because as much as I love the last shot, the shot with the bugs overall, uh, probably my least favorite. But that's not like whatever. Like it's it's still awesome. It just happens to be my least favorite on this one. But yeah, the crate to me is just is just perfect. And I do think you could show this to I think anybody any modern horror fan that maybe I don't know. Like I, I I'd be really hard pressed to think someone would watch this and wouldn't like it. That might be something I just don't want in my life. Um, <laughs> right. Because it still has so much, it, it's still really fun. Like in the, and you mentioned the use of sound, the use of color, and and the use of how they have those comic, the, the, the comic book look interspersed. All that's so creative. I in I a world where every movie is teal and orange now, <laughs> yes. it's so refreshing to watch a movie like it, that is just bursting with color. Yeah, it's so. Well, and it gives it kind of a timeless quality too. You yeah. know, this was yeah. made in you know the early '80s, but it doesn't. I mean, there are things that definitely fill '80s. Those houses. Uh, <laughs> And uh, the decorations and the, you know, velvet suits. But, but it, it it has that comic book, you know, timelessness to it. Yeah, and there's a lot of stuff from the early 80s, late 70s that we definitely look through with rose-colored glasses. Sure. Uh, I'm looking at you, Amityville Horror. Yeah, you suck. But, uh... It, <laughs> yeah, Amityville sucks. It's terrible. Yeah, it's bad. It's terrible. It was like, the remake was better. Um, but... <laughs> but, but, when, but something like this, I think, does stand the test of time, and it will, because it's... I, I mean... I think you can show us anybody and if they don't enjoy it, like there's something wrong with them. <laughs> <laughs> All right. My favorite is tight. Something to tide you over and then probably mm-hmm. lonesome death of Jordy and probably then the crate. Um, I just, just seeing Ted Danson and Leslie Nielsen going at it and just again before like in Ted Danson before, like he's cheers, Ted Danson, Leslie Nielsen, when he's still like sinister, there, Leslie Nielsen, and just the visceral idea of being stuck in that water and just like mm-hmm. you can smell and taste the seawater. Um, the saltiness is just very, and again, seeing at a younger age without seeing the revenge part really kind of imprinted on my brain. Um, and then, yeah, something about the silliness, but then the dire situation of uh, Jordy's situation just really speaks to me. Um, but again, again, we're just splitting hairs really because all these are fantastic. Um, perfectly directed, perfectly written. The score is amazing. Like everyone, not all the actors knocking out of the park. Um, like I, I don't know if I can say that yet, but I watched this with my son, who's seventeen, over the last two nights. He thought it was okay. I could tell he wasn't like he was into it, but he wasn't like he wasn't over the moon or anything. Um, and I think it might be losing a little of its veneer with a more modern audience. I just don't think he has the appreciation for some of it. Um, I mean, I, I do I, wonder I'll, though, because he's young, so I do wonder, like, mm-hmm. in five or six years, if he'd look at it differently. Because I, I think one thing too, I know my daughter does it sometimes with movies that are older like this. If it doesn't immediately grasp their attention span, it's like onto the phone, onto something else. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I do think that is a not. I'm not saying an issue with younger people. It's just how the world is nowadays. So I, I do kind of wonder yeah. as people get a little bit older. I think have, I bet he has a better appreciation for it. Yeah, and he's still like growing and yeah. as a horror fan because we watched uh, Happy Death Day the other night and he loved it. Oh, cool! Yeah. He, thought it was, he thought it was great. So he's he has appreciation. He's got yeah. taste. Um, this didn't like buy them that this this thing grabbed him very strong. But this is definitely like should be the template, or at least like there's so many lessons to learn about how to do a good horror anthology. It's a cutout as much fat as possible. Um, you know, go big. There's no reason to like hold anything back. You know, we only have 20 minutes a segment 
Each one needs to find a way to stand out. Um, the, again, the splashes of color, the lighting and everything. You don't need no big, big fancy effects. Keep it simple. Um, yeah, I mean, this is a classic for a reason. Yeah, and there's definitely a theme, right? Every Everything, I mean, obviously, it's totally different stories, but you said the color palettes and then the sound, all that, it all blends it all together and makes it feel very cohesive, which a, a, well, lot, of, a lot of anthologies, anthologies don't do that. A lot of anthologies feel like it's just, hey, we had we had one good well, story, and then we have these other stories that we found. A lot of, well, so the thing now is I think a lot of anthologies are just a bunch of short movies smashed together, right. or they give yeah. a bunch of disparate filmmakers the same amount of money and go, go make something, and it's like, I mean, it... It never feels as cohesive as this, yeah. right? Well, including the Creep Show series they did on Shutter, the first season anyway. Yeah, like there was just no style, there was no music to it. And then when I tell you that I wrote them a thesis on what they were doing wrong, because they <laughs> sent me an email with it one day, and they're like, it was like an automated email, like, "Hey, we noticed you watch Creep Show. Well, do you have any feedback for season two? And I was like, Let's "Do this. <laughs> I'll take." Well, I like called work and was like, "I can't come in today." Well, and yeah, even with the show, like there were occasional segments that were just absolute bangers, but only occasionally. Like it wasn't yeah. as consistent by any means. That's uh, that Evil Dead one, uh, oh, so NPR kind of, or like public access TV Evil Dead thing. I really love that one. Well, the irony is like I actually don't really like anthologies that much, and part of it is like I have this thing on such a high pedestal, just nothing, nothing lives up to it. Yeah. I, I for the most part do enjoy anthologies. The problem is most of them just aren't very good. Just most of them aren't good. I do, since I won't get to be on your your other anthology shows. I do enjoy Tales from the Dark Side, nineteen mm-hmm. ninety. That one's pretty good. Um, and I have a, a weird soft spot for Tales from the Dark Side, the television, the syndicated television show, which is just epic levels of of eighties schlock. Like mm-hmm. the idea that you could just randomly find that on like a Saturday afternoon. On like a UHF channel, that's my happy place. Oh, I miss those. I miss. There's a lot of stuff I do miss about those days. Searching we, around the dial on right. the UHF, yeah. like almost kind of weird indie TV shit is out here. We had a local channel that had. We had. Um, if you guys have ever heard of Count's Customs, he's got a TV show on Discovery Channel. Oh. Um, he used to be when I grew up in Las Vegas. He was Count Cool Rider, the motorcycle riding vampire horror host. That would have on channel six or, ten, or channel thirty three would have would do that in midday. You'd walk, you you get a block of Twilight Zone, Tales from the Dark Side, and then whatever public domain movies he was showing. It was it was a, a good time to be a kid. Nice. So be- oh. before we move off Creep Show, real quick, Eric, what are your thoughts on Creep Show Two? I love Creep Show Two. I don't think it's as good. Mm. Um, I think that Creep Show Two again doesn't really follow the formula. I think that first segment is kind of weak, although it does have a great ending. That you want to talk about something boring that's boring to sit through, waiting for that first segment to come through. We also have problematic white actors playing Native Americans. Do you know who that that main, I'm air quoting, Native American guy in the first thing of Creep Show with the long hair? He's like, oh, I'm going to go to Hollywood, whatever. Do you know who that guy is? Not the top of my head. That is the guy from... Um, that Netflix show about the FBI profilers, Mindhunters. Uh, Mindhunters, yeah, mm-hmm. that, dude. No way. <laughs> older guy. Oh. Once you see it, you will never unsee it. Yeah, that guy white, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, but the raft is incredible. Again, like raft I like things yeah. that I like things that put me in a time and a space. Like when I think the raft, I think 
okay, it's fall, I'm chilly, we're going swimming, like I feel it, you know? Um, and then the third one is fantastic. The, the mm -hmm. woman who is cheating on her husband and hits the hitchhiker, it's just so good. We won't talk about also kind of, yeah, I'm also really into that lady, but I feel like that's a little less crazy than the the mom in the first segment here. <laughs> All right. Mondo, give She's us meant to be attractive in that movie is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Mondo, give us your song of the day. All right, so I'm, I'm going to be pretty on the nose. I couldn't also kind of try to think like, what can I do for Creep Show? And I happen to find this band out of Chicago that calls themselves Creep Show. And they Sick. called their style blackened synth thrash. And I listened to it. I'm like, this is pretty damn good. And I'll be sending you $5 on Bandcamp for this album. <laughs> and so the song I'm going to pick, which I love it, the album title, is called <coughs> Wicked, Wicked Tome, featuring Professor Pizza. Off Sweet. their album, Creep Show. And I would tell you, just look up the album art cover, because the album art cover is like a love lady, a love lady, a love letter to just 80s cheesy schlock movie posters you will occasionally send me bands similar to i haven't heard it but like this mix the mixing of metal and synth it's not stuff i like seek out but as someone who's very into synth music i find it fascinating you wouldn't oh, wow like that this is band. a cover that is a cool cover i just uh, looked it up uh, this band yep. is more metal than they are than they are synth but they're they're using some of the synth, synth stuff in the background there is a really cool but what's funny is a lot of metal has got angry there's a band called fulci obviously based off lucio fulci and their last record the first half is just their style of slam death metal the second mm -hmm. half is 100 percent synth 100 percent like italian movie score synth and it's fantastic that um sweet but there's a, there's there's three different there's three different groups of people on this the the, the, the metal heads that are like oh fuck that it's not metal album sucks the synth people that are like throw that first half away is garbage and people like me that are like give me all of it <laughs> <laughs> awesome thank you mondo all right, before we wrap up, we uh, like to do our dad advice. Uh, Eric, you're our guest. So what advice would you like to leave for our audience? Man, can it be serious? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Serious, it can be funny, okay. whatever you want. Okay. Definitely. My dad advice is pretty simple, and I've been in the show before, and I might have said this same exact thing, but my dad advice is go to therapy, go to therapy, and then go to more therapy. Um, we... What I have learned in life is that we all went through things when we were younger that left an impression on us. And a lot of those impressions are negative. You know, there is no trauma Olympics. We're not in a competition, but like we've all been through those things. And whether we know it or not, those things heavily influence how we react to stressors in our life and how we parent our children. And I think we as millennials, Gen X, Gen Z, like we have uh, a, in human history, like unprecedented opportunity to address like the buildup of generational trauma. Mm -hmm. And that starts with doing something that I couldn't do for most of my life, which is looking in a vulnerable way, looking deep inside of yourself to like see the ways that you are broken and then getting help. And like, mm -hmm. if I can tell people anything, it's like, you're never free of it, but healing is possible. And what you find after a while is that you can actually rewire your brain and, and start to react to things in a healthier way. 
it takes a lot of introspection and a lot of work and finding a good therapist, which is not always easy, but like very worth it. Um, and, and so that, and just remembering that your children are ultimately when they are young, they're helpless. You can forget that sometimes because children can be out of control. They can be mean. They can be vindictive. Like kids grow up at a certain age and they just start testing out mean shit to say to you. <laughs> or like one thing I struggle with is like my one child will be very mean to her younger sibling. Mm-hmm. And that brings up a lot of feelings for me, for my childhood. And like I find it really difficult to to react in a measured way in those situations. But what I would say is like, that is your body's way of bringing attention to something that needs work. So, you know, being a parent is not all about working on your children. It's about letting your children be who they are and working on yourself and never stopping that journey. That's great. And setting a good example for them. Yeah, because I believe like we as parents like to say verbally the things that we want our kids Mm -hmm. to remember. And but when I really look at myself, the deepest lessons that I learned, both good and bad, were from observing my parents, not from anything they ever said to me. No. Yeah, no, I I think by far the the best thing you can do as a parent is to you know work on yourself, to work on being a better person and dealing with the stuff that is in your life and in your head. I, I appreciate that in recent times, it's become a lot more accepted to be able to talk about these things, you know? Mm-hmm. That's, and that's why I I feel uh, having somewhat of a platform in this world, I feel a responsibility yeah. to do it for other. What I wish for like, and I apologize for interrupting Jody, no, what I, I wish for other men to have in their life is avenues to be vulnerable. Because I see it, I have male friends and I find I can't even really be vulnerable with most of them the way that I would like to be because I think it can make people uncomfortable sometimes. So I think that's what men need. Yeah. Because otherwise you don't have an outlet. Right. Like I don't think, I think we might be like the first generation to actually have assigned coping mechanisms or we have you know access to. know what that fucking we... means, you know? Yeah. Like, like there's times I tell my kids I need to step away for a minute, take a breath. Mm-hmm. I might go meditate for a few minutes. And there's been times my kids are like, Daddy, you might need to go meditate. Like, there you go. But again, they, they like put back on me. Seeing also... you seeing you practice what you preach, mm-hmm. I think I'm sure will mm-hmm. have a huge impact on them. And, and you're, you're just giving them tools too. So when they event, if they if yeah. they eventually if they eventually become parents, they, like the idea is we're trying to stop this generational trauma that we all went through, that our parents went through, et cetera, et cetera. And like you said, Eric, we have the best chance of actually. Yeah. Kind of not not ending it, getting narrowing it down to where it's going to be hopefully ended by the time our great grandkids are around. And, nope. and the, I I think that the like the compounding effect that will have generationally is like you can't calculate it. Well, and I, I now you can at least in my family we were able to have some good conversations. Like the other day, I had all my older kids around and we were just kind of you know talking about things. I have anxiety issues that I take medication for. One of my sons also does. And so we were talking about how, you know, that's probably me passing that on down to you either genetically or through some other way. And 
I said, well, and over here, you know, uh, my wife has issues with uh, some sensory things and textures and all that kind of stuff. And that's probably why you're and we're just, you know, just having conversations where we're talking about here's our issues. We have ADHD in some of our kids. And so I'm like, yeah, that's probably from, you know, this side of the fa and just being able to talk about these things openly, mm -hmm. talk about having to go get treatment or help or therapy or whatever and not trying to bury any of this it's just it's yeah. part of life and so big, I, i'm very open with my kids about these kind of things it's the biggest thing we can do as men is normalize both those things both for for other men and for children yeah. and i don't um i don't want to cut the ladies out <laughs> but i think that um women are often often take to these things a little easier than we do. Like I think a lot of men have to be forced well, or pushed or, you know, like I, I was, it's, it's I been was a little more acceptable. Forced, I was straight up forced by my life kind of falling apart and like, all right. It was like, I, I was just having this conversation with my mom today. It was like the vulnerable part is the key part. Cause like the first time years ago I went to therapy, I was not capable of being vulnerable. I, I didn't have it in me and it was not the right therapist to get it out of me. The next time I went, which was in 2020, I mean, I dude, I, I walked in that virtual door with my guts in my hands, basically. Like, I don't know how else to put it. And just yeah. like, mm -hmm. here, help me sort this, please. <laughs> like, <laughs> and that's what it is. I mean, it's like observing and filing and rebuilding and fixing. And yeah, like some of it's put together with duct tape, but it's, you know, it's back together. Definitely. And, and, and again, yeah. not to exclude the ladies, but like a lot of the reasons why most of us didn't go to therapy when we were younger was is toxic masculinity. We were always yeah. taught that as, yeah. as, as a male, you just don't do that. You don't talk about your feelings. You bury that shit deep inside and go have a drink and call it a day, which is not healthy. It's not a and healthy my, way to cope with things. You know, my father never would have said that to me because that's not the way he was. Like he was not that's outwardly good. toxic like that. But mm -hmm. what I saw was him being blank, basically, yeah. like him just absorbing everything and never... But society, society pushed that though. Society as, as a whole, I mean that like, again, male driven right. media and stuff like that always put that like, oh, it's the goofy guy, the weird guy that goes to therapy or, you know, that has right. depression. So, yeah, oh, man. Like, I, I think that generation just didn't have a, a language to express that or like yeah. the tools Perfect. available or like anything <clears throat> defined for them. And That's one of my favorite things that Elizabeth and I do is like when we watch old 90s or 80s stuff it's like how irresponsible is this therapy scene <laughs> like, <laughs> how ostracizing are we making people who need mental health feel it, it, it's funny because one of these shows that did it best was sopranos because you had this guy who was yeah, this mafia right? boss one of the most powerful people in 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 the east coast who routinely was going to therapy and being as vulnerable as possible and telling her like I, I'd, I'd probably get killed if they knew i was coming to you but i need to talk to somebody <laughs> yeah yeah Anyway, that's my advice. Sorry to bring the show down. That was awesome. No, I love that it. That's, that's, that's what we like. Yeah. All right. Well, that wraps up another episode. Eric, thank you so much for joining us. Where Anytime. can people find you? Uh, go to your podcasting platform and search for Bloody Good Horror. I chose that name for a website I made when I was 18 or 19 years old in like the year 2000. So, <laughs> no, it's not cool but it works. <laughs> um, I also make synth music that I'm very proud of. Mm -hmm. um, if you, I'm on, my latest album is on like anything, Apple, whatever, but mostly I'm on Spotify and Bandcamp. Um, if you search for Hi-Fi, H-Y-F-Y, H-Y-F-Y. And I would call it like 
80s synth inspired music with somewhat of a modern edge on it. Like, and it's inspired by probably Carpenter and John Harrison are probably my two biggest inspirations. Excellent. And it's like uh, almost like a score to a movie that doesn't exist. That's what I like about it. Like the imagery that just kind of conjures. And I would say follow me on Instagram. I appreciate that. I would say Eric BGH on any socials. I'm on Instagram the most these days. Twitter is kind of a garbage fire. So a little bit. Yeah, how how the threads treat you? It's fine. I need like a follow list and hashtags, and then yeah. I'll check. Mm-hmm. It I think out. it'll get better. But I, but I, if they give me a follow, like in a real following list and hashtags, uh, I'm dumping Twitter. Yeah, I'm fine. Same thing. Yeah. Every time I open up threads, I I realize I'm not immediately assaulted by things that make me mad. Yeah. And so I like that. So, but, well, the one thing I was keeping Twitter on for was to promote my stuff, but mm-hmm. my engagement got like halved, and I'm not yeah. going to pay for Twitter. So, yeah. yeah, you know, what I liked about Twitter pre pre Musk was that I could just block all these keywords. So my feed is a constant stream of like horror movies, video games, pro yeah. wrestling, and jujitsu stuff I actually love. But then it seems like now I'll still get the freaking ads of stuff I, that just upsets me. And, did the same, but I found out that there is a limit on how many, like I even way pre-Musk, I hit the limit of how many words. Oh, I haven't that. It's like 40, I think, <laughs> 40 or 60 or something. It's not a lot. All right. Well, next week we will be back to covering Tales from the Crypt. We'll be doing the season seven episode, A Slight Case of Murder. We appreciate everyone for listening. We'd really appreciate if you give us a rating or review on iTunes, rating on Spotify, check out our YouTube video. A YouTube page for videos of these podcasts. And with that, we thank you for listening to Dads from the Crypt. Goodbye. <laughs> Follow Dads from the Crypt on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or I will follow you to the grave. <laughs> no, seriously, you really should watch, but be careful what you ask for. You may get it. <laughs>